Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grand, here with Jim Thompson, interviewing rock and roll journalist, gonzo reporter, comic book writer, magazine publisher. You can see his latest work with Yi Soon Shin, Y-I-S-O-O-N-S-H-I-N, graphic novel available on Amazon.com. David Anthony Kraft, let's continue. I want to ask a couple questions about Defenders, which relates to the Steve Gerber stuff that preceded you. What was it like coming on a book? Like, because his was like nothing I'd ever read before. He was a really good friend. Salakrup and I started this separate studio from Marvel called Mad Genius Associates. And some of the places have this like totally wrong. They have Steve being part of it. He wasn't. It was Salakrup and me. But we were at 850, or was it 750, 8th Avenue? in the same building as the guy who wrote Network, you know, Patty Chevsky. Oh, we wow. the elevator with him. Those are like golden times. But Steve needed a place, so he sublet from us. So he was in the offices, and we all, being freelancers, we kept crazy hours. You know what I mean? A good time to work might be 4 to 8 in the morning, and then you sleep or whatever. So, you know, we hung out a lot, and we kicked ideas back and forth a lot, stuff like that. I always loved, really, his man thing, and a lot of his defenders was just amazing. Because he never knew what he was doing. That's the point. <laughs> that was the very definition of chaos to me. Was... Yeah, yeah. When Roger Slifer and I took over Defenders, when there was that dangling elf with a gun thing, Steve had no clue what he was going to do with that. There was, he was no help at all. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. So, you know, we had him hit by a truck, which seemed like a very kind of Dada conclusion. You know what I mean? Like this happens. And not everything needs a neat, pat answer. I hate that later on they tried to answer that. It's like... You don't have to explain everything in life. Some things just, just happen. But anyway, he was like, that's the best ending outside of anything I might have come up with. And I have no idea what I might have come up with. He might have come up with something that me or Roger or Salakrup or somebody else helped them come up with in a last minute dinner. But that's what made the stuff so crazy. That's how Howard the Duck could come to exist. So when you came on to Defenders, was there pressure to make it more commercial or to normalize it in any way at all? I never or, had or... any pressure of any kind. You know, that was what was so great about those days. Here's what was bad. You got your page rate and that's what you got. Archie Goodwin was editor-in-chief, right, at the time? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a revolving chair. You know, there was Lunween, then there was Marv, you know, then there was Jerry for like, I don't know, three weeks. Then there was Archie, then there was Jim. But in those days, nobody tried to direct that. When you had a book as the writer, you were basically in charge of that book. Now, on the top books, there was more attention paid. You know what I mean? It's like, don't use this villain too much or this or that. But basically, you were like kids. We just had free reign. So let me ask you about a couple of storylines in your run on Defenders. Obviously, the one that sticks in my mind is the return of Demon Hunter or Devil Slayer, whatever we were calling him at various times. Now, Buckler wasn't part of this. Was this the first time the character had been used without him? Actually, if you think about it, the first time was in the book that I did with him, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, which was started out as Astonishing Tales, but ended up published as Spotlight. But if you look at that, he disappeared like halfway through it. And you've got Arvell Jones and other people pitching in to finish the thing up. Right. And, you know, it's like what I was saying earlier, Rich would overcommit to things. And then he'd have to have a lot of ghosts. Arvell started as his ghost for years, and so did George and so on and so on. And they got careers out of it because, like I say, Rich was good. If you look at some of that early Deathlock stuff, my God, it's great. Oh, it's great. Yeah. But the busier he got, the less he would put into something. And then sometimes nothing at all. And so actually, 
half of that spotlight didn't have rich. <laughs> mm. You know, I don't know what he was doing, but it wasn't bad because I thought of it as my character. You know, it was kind of natural to you know put him in defenders. Did you talk to him about it, or did he just go ahead and do it? No, I just he just went ahead and did it. You know, and I mean, mileage varies. I'm sure there were so many people doing books, you know. Sometimes you talk to people about stuff, but a lot of the time, there wasn't any time to talk to people about stuff. Where's the plot, Kraft? Burton would say. And I would go home and pull one out of my ass. So, well. <laughs> so it wasn't as studied as things are maybe today. And then he took the character back somewhat in his own... Um, yeah, he did something with it, and he didn't talk to me either. So tit for tat, right? <laughs> No, I'm not sure you got even a mention in terms of... No, no, you know, I chided him about that, by the way. (laughs) I was like, oh, I wondered wondered about that. Yeah, (laughs) I did too. I was like, have we forgotten (laughs) me then? (laughs) Because that was his self-creation at that point. Yeah, that also happens. I mean, if you look around, there's people like, I did this, you know, and where's the other people there, you know? But I don't think it was intentional. You know, I just think he didn't think about it. And what else in terms of your run on Defenders? Now, did you do the Sons of the Serpent storyline? No. Okay. But you really made Hellcat into your own, too, Uh, right? He was my favorite. I think it shows. (laughs) Yeah. No, that stands out. You know, we had the comics code, and today, all my jokes aside about shooting heroin into your eyeballs, in Batman, somebody can put a needle in somebody's eyeball, and it's totally fine. Not so much in my day. When I was writing World's Finest for DC, which was when I returned to them later, I did a long story leading up to World's Finest 300. And then there was a coda, like a little epilogue, a five or six page story that David Mazzucchelli drew. But I had Superman and Batman at a bar afterwards. And remember, these were the characters as they were then. I had Superman order milk and I had Batman order a shot of Jack. Dick Giordano stopped that. Oh, Batman really? Not drink whiskey, don't you? Right. Today, Batman can stab you in the eyeball. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> eat it. <laughs> but those were different times. Mm-hmm. So with the code there and everything, we had to be circumspect about stuff. So Hellcat, I had her being promiscuous in a fun way. There's a real doleful, like, you know, official way of looking at it. Like people who are promiscuous are bad. Right. But I was like, no, not always. You can have fun in your life. It's okay. So I had her like that, but I had to have it go under the code's radar. I always had her flirting with everybody and coming on to everybody and things like that. That's why she was the happy-go-lucky Hellcat. Were you doing She-Hulk at the same time? Because She-Hulk was a long-running book for you. you well, I did much... about as many Defenders as She-Hulk. I did 25 or 26 Yeah, issues. those were your two long-running books, weren't they? Yeah. The She-Hulk came after. But there and again, and I give Joe Duffy credit, mainly not because we ever talked about it, but because she didn't blow the whistle and turn me in. But I pushed it even further with the She-Hulk. You know, I had her having two different boyfriends. It was knowingly because she was conscious of what she did as either self. But when she was Jen, the attorney, she had a more staid boyfriend, Richard Rory, who I always liked from Steve's stuff. So I brought yeah. him back. And then she had Zapper, which was really, if you flip it, it's like a guy who has like the young girlfriend. She had like the young boy toy. And she did that knowingly. And that, as far as I know, hadn't been done. And they could have made us think about it, but the code was so busy looking at, like, are her breasts too big? Is there too mm-hmm. much thigh showing? Right. They were too stupid to notice the actual themes and stuff. <laughs> you know, and I liken it to this. When I was on staff editing and Starlin's books would come in, I liked his stuff really a lot. Mm-hmm. And there were things I knew would be all hell would break loose, as Chris would always write in his stories. And then all hell broke loose. I knew all hell would break loose if 
that Warlock story that he did that had the anagrams for everybody's name, like John Romita and Len Wein and so on. And it was this competition to see who could build the highest piles of shit. And it was his, his, it was his metaphor for Marvel and DC. I knew if I said anything around the office, <laughs> there would be hell flying. I just rubber stamped it and sent it to the printer. Oh, you know, cool. Nobody saw it, Len, John, or anybody, until after it was printed. Right, too late. And then all hell broke loose. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you knew well, going in. That's great. Well, here's the same thing. I mean, that's the kind of control we had, if you think about it, in a, in a weird way. You know what I mean? It was like Don and I were the gatekeepers. If we let a thing through, it went through unless the code objected to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, they'd call people on the carpet and stuff over it. But the same thing with the She-Hulk, why I give Joe Duffy credit is she didn't blow the whistle on me. She didn't make any stink around the office. She just let my stuff go. I like that. That established the She-Hulk. You know what I mean? It was like she embraced her sensuous side, you know, instead of the usual puritanical type, the imperial morals. Right. Which is still a lasting trait of She-Hulk. Yeah. It just occurred to me, and I hadn't thought of it before, that in Dan Slott's run, where he had She-Hulk engaged to John Jameson, I haven't read it, but I like it yeah, because it that's makes it. sense. You know, I put Manwolf into She-Hulk and I put Hellcat in the same issue because, hey, I like them. They're my characters. Mm-hmm. But it makes perfect sense for that to happen down the line. Right. You know, I really hated see um, DeFalco and Grunewald ordered me to do that spectacular Spider-Man annual where Manwolf returns to the status quo where he's just a beast. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember that. that. I didn't like it yeah. at all. Oh, I didn't like it either. But here's what they <laughs> said to me. This is what we're going to do, whether you like it or not. Out of courtesy, we're offering you the chance to do it. Well, if somebody has to do it, I guess I'll do it because I was associated with the character. But I thought it was a lack of vision. They did not see the potential in that character. Why don't we just make a stupid, limited character back? You know, it's like just, hmm. (laughs) So my name is on it, but that wasn't my story. Anything else you want to say about She-Hulk? For mere mortals, a lot of time has gone by. When I reckon it in mortal years, <laughs> it's like, how long has she been around now? 30 years more? To me, I am gifted with an extraordinary memory. So everything is current to me. So it's like, in real time, she's as fresh to me as when I did those. So it's weird to think in those terms, but it's like, that character sure did last a long time. I did an introduction to Marvel Masterworks Savage Shield. They did a couple of volumes. And I pointed out that there were two things that I was trying to do there. I hated the idea of She-Hulk because Stan always said, we're not like DC. You know, they have like super monkey and super cat and, <laughs> right. you know, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> you know, and we don't do that. Well, then it became necessary to do that. And Stan did that first issue almost overnight. It didn't he well, do that to kind of match the TV show or to pre-do it before the TV show or something like that? There was a feeling that Universal was going to do an end run and try to have like a female hook. Mm-hmm. And so very rapidly, Stan had to do that. Right. So it was more to just to create the character before someone else yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, to protect the thing. If right. you look at Stan's issue, she's an attorney and she turns into the hook. That's all there is. Everything else about it fell to me. Why I requested it, I went to shoot her and I said, I, I hated the idea, but here's what I hated even more. I always loved the hook, but all I could see was a lot of people are very derivative. And so what they would do is a female version of the Hulk. And I thought that would just be horrible. So I went in and I said, I don't like the idea of this at all, but I have to do this book so that it's not like the Hulk. <laughs> and that was my sales pitch for that. And I gave her a libido. You know, I gave her a couple of boyfriends. And you know, they've done all this stuff with the Hulk since, you know, like where he's intelligent and stuff. But 
I had her drinking martinis and driving around in a pink Cadillac. You know, That's it cool. was as far from the Hulk as you could possibly get. My last issue, if I have any regrets, it's that I waited too long. My idea about the She-Hulk was this. I tried to treat it like an original Marvel character. And, you know, when they were starting, those stories were pretty primitive, if you go back yeah. and look at yeah. them. There was always a robot, etc. So that's why in the early She-Hulk, there's a robot. Well, I was trying to start it like Marvel from those primitive times and then advance it to Marvel at the current time. And I think I took too long. So they canceled it like with issue 25. And I was almost where I wanted to be. So I got Salakrep, who was editing two-in-one, to let me do a She-Hulk and Thing story. And that's the one where she's driving around in the Cadillac and... Right. You know, drinking. And at the end of it, and I got this past the code. She's hitting on the thing all through the story. At the end, they're quarantined together for three days. You know, I leave it to your imagination. But the code being the code, they didn't catch that. No, uh, that's cool. So I felt like I finally got where I wanted to go. Then they gave it to John Byrne. <laughs> he was like, look what I'm doing with the She-Hulk. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I have one more question, and then I'm going to turn it over to Alex to basically bring us home, and we still have a lot to talk about. But in the Defenders, the Blue Oyster Cult use of that, because we kind of jumped right into the comic book stuff, Tie in Blue Oyster Cult and your early days in relation to music and just how that impacts the comic stuff that you did. Before I ever got to Marvel, I mean, you know, those were the days when I was a kid, the Beatles ran Ed Sullivan. And from there on, I was sold. In fact, I actually was into Elvis before the Beatles, but I think at that point I was an actual fetus. But that was my kind of thing. So Rich and I, and Rich was always into rock. So we kind of hit it off on that. And we put Bloister Cult into the Demon Hunter over at Atlas. And so it made sense. That was kind of the soundtrack to the character. So that's why I did it when I brought him over to Marvel. Interestingly enough, I invited Eric Bloom up to the bullpen and he came up. Because they oh, were wow. kind of, I've got some snapshots. And I don't know why Sterno pushed himself into the picture. <laughs> but <laughs> Sterno and Shooter are in the picture too. And it's like, Shooter thought he was a drummer and stuff. I mean, he was so out of anything Music. But anyway, whenever I could, I would try to tie stuff in. You know what I mean? I put Rush stuff in. And usually the bands were kind of chuffed for that to happen. And it got a lot of press in the rock media. And when I was writing Defenders with Roger, that was a tight, tight, tight deadline because Jerry had jumped ship again. And suddenly an issue of Defenders needed to be scripted, which was drawn. But there was no written plot and there were no like notes on the side from Keith. And we couldn't get a hold of Jerry or Keith because it was a holiday weekend. So we just had to come up with an, the entire rationale for a four-part story based on nothing and do it over the weekend. So we were like at Roger's apartment and we split up scenes and stuff. I took Hellcat from the start. I'm like, give me her. But anyway, I put Rush lyrics into there because they sort of seemed to fit the story. And that was the 2112 album. Roger wasn't familiar with it. But when I introduced him to it, then he, he liked it. And because we put Rush in there, they invited us backstage to a show. And so, you know, Roger got to meet him too and stuff. And Bloister called. I was backstage a couple times, but there's a shot in Foom that I don't think the printer returned. So I don't have the actual photo. I only have the printed version of it. But there's a shot of me with the cult. And they were so short. They were not short on talent, but physically they were so short. If you look at that Foom picture... Eric is standing on his tiptoes, trying desperately to be <laughs> as tall as me. And over time, they were very popular. And when Kiss was up and coming, they would open for Blister Cold. 
And then when Kiss got very popular, it switched and Blue Oyster Cult would open for Kiss. And I was in Toronto once for a stadium concert and it was Kiss were the mainliners and the Cult were opening. And backstage, it was so funny because, you know, and I'm not a tall guy. I'm like five nine, but all the, the Cult guys were shorter than me. And then you had the Kiss guys who without their boots were all like six, eight, 10, 12 feet tall. And then with their <laughs> boots on, I'm like talking into Gene's navel, you know, hoping it gets up to the top of the tower somehow. And then there's these little tiny cultures. <laughs> anyway, that's the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. I always tried to work that stuff in. Here's what's funny. I have only found out in recent years, something I never would have thought. I thought they were pretty, you know, they were big and they were well-established. And I guess they looked at Marvel and thought, hey, they're big and they're well-established. Mm-hmm. But I have had many, many people tell me that they came to Rush or BOC because of the comics I wrote. I never thought that would happen. I'm like, what, really? <laughs> that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Then you also expressed your love for music and the Beatles in those two Marvel super specials you mentioned earlier, and that was in 78. And then shortly after, you also then got into children Marvel books for children's press, Marvel yeah. books, and yeah. Simon and & Schuster. Can you tell us about the children books? Yeah, and here's the other thing. I don't know if Jim Shooter has a bad memory or uh-huh. if he just pitches his stories to whoever's listening. I have no way of knowing which. I always got along well with Jim, but mm-hmm. he'll do strange things like that. He'll tell the same story six different ways. And why do I bring this up? Well, yeah. because he has many times said Saul Brodsky did nothing at Marvel. Which is interesting because he wrote the obituary for Saul saying he did a lot. So that's interesting that he would say that yeah, later. So, I mean, okay, I see you, what you're saying. There were, I've seen interviews with Jim where he's like, Saul changed light bulbs. There was nothing for him to do. That's not how it was at all. Mm-hmm. Saul did so much stuff. And that's why I bring this up. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I don't know. I think Jim probably believes whatever he says when he says it. I don't know. And when we went out drinking after work, we always got along. But sometimes I I can't figure it out. At one point in his blog, he accused me of plagiarism for doing the the rock stuff. I'm like, plagiarism, my ass. Marvel sent out press releases in the rock press. Don't be accusing me of plagiarism, which gracefully he apologized for. But the thing with all this stuff is, Saul was doing plenty of things. He was a vice president, you know, years before Shooter made vice president. He had his own whole department. He was VP of of Marvel, but what, of what he really okay. did was special projects. There you go. And there were billions of special projects all the time. So mm-hmm. there's, I see lists like that people have compiled. Like here's what Dak did. They're not even a third of what I did. That stuff that Saul packaged doesn't make most of those lists. It would be pop-up books for like South America with Marie mm. Severn and John Romita and me, you know, things like that. And I don't see those on any list anymore. Well, all that stuff was coming out of Saul's department. That was his department doing industrials, as he called them. So I used to do a lot of work for Saul. And when they decided to do, I think Galton made the decision, but when they decided to move into children's books and do the Marvel books imprint, they needed an editor. So Saul turned to me because, hey, I'm great, right? <laughs> you can take it from me. Anyway, it was kind of interesting because when Marvel moved from 575 Madison down to 387 Park Avenue South, there was an edict posted that no freelancers, artists or writers would be allowed anymore to work in the bullpen. Well, I said to Saul, how am I supposed to edit Marvel books? What, I'm going to have people come to my apartment? <laughs> that mm-hmm. seems pretty mm-hmm. unprofessional. And Saul was like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. So I had no idea. When we moved to 387 Park Avenue South, to my great surprise, and I think to Jim's chagrin, I had an office 
exactly diagonally opposite his. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I wasn't on staff. <laughs> so that was kind of weird. But funny, you know, I think Saul had a sense of humor, but he also had power. He did right. not change light bulbs. Yeah, and he was very good natured. I call him my Jewish father, you know, because he was. Oh, that's you know, cool. You know, I have a Southern father, et cetera, et cetera. But anyhow, I was the editor of those books. And what happened was on the main floor at Marvel, the editorial floor, they were like, we want the Marvel library down here. And it was up on the business floor. So it was put in my office and I was moved around the corner from Jim Galton on the executive floor. <laughs> and it was great because I was freelance. I could come in when I wanted, do whatever yeah, I wanted. Really you know, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was. But anyway, that was my editing the Marvel book stage. And Here's where Saul came through for me. I had bought a house, the very one I'm in now on Screamer Mountain. And it was like being with the mob. I had a first mortgage, a second mortgage. I had a note for furniture and everything else. And then the fourth week, I had like utilities and insurance. I had to run as fast as I could. Saul gave me a contract with Marvel that guaranteed me enough work to cover all that stuff. It was one of those contracts, which, you know, a lot of the guys there had, but if they didn't give me enough work, they had to pay me anyway. So, you know, I was kind of covered for stuff, which was great on his part. And then I had to do it all. So that's how I ended up doing that until I went back. I'd been publishing before I went to Marvel and I kind of went back to publishing. Now you mentioned, and Jim, I think might have some questions on this, is that by 1983, after Shooter's Changes, it became really regimented and organized like DC, more of a conservative environment. You left and that you worked on World's Finest at DC. Jim, did you have any questions about that period? Yes, only that it took place. The reasons for leaving Marvel and whether there was a role in relation to Shooter in that, but also you went back to DC and you did a, a little bit of work for World's Finest, but that was it. And then In terms of writing comics, that was sort of a change in your career. Is that right? Sort of. I went to do World's Finest because my friend Roger Slifer was editing, and he had some issue, no pun intended, with an issue. I pitched in and and did a Mm fill-in, and he liked it so much, he was like, you should just do World's Finest. We always worked together really well. Like There were periods of time where I was his editor and, and times where he was mine. And here's the weird thing. We made each other work really hard. So you'd think that wouldn't be a good thing. But you know, if somebody points out a flaw in a story and they're right, how do you let it go? You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, well, the story would be improved if you did this and this. And it's like, God damn it, now I have to rewrite it because it would be improved. <laughs> right. So we were kind of good for each other, but we made each other really a lot of work. So that's how I ended up on World's Finest. And then when Roger left, I kind of left too. And you know, I, I'm see. not even getting into all the DC things. DC is the most fucked up place I ever worked try to fuck you on the rates, blame you for shit you didn't do. My final issue on that, we were trying to create new villains for World's Finest. And I was doing a Swordfish and Barracuda story. And Pat Bastian called me and said, you don't have this in. You know, we're taking you off the book. And I'm like, have you looked in the drawer? He's like, no. I said, well, look in the drawer. Oh, the script is here. Duh. (laughs) Uh Anyway, so I'm like, so you're not having someone else write it. Oh, yes. We gave it to somebody else to do over the weekend because you didn't have it in. Well, I did have it in because you're holding it. It was in the drawer. Ooh, DC Comics. <laughs> I see. Right, so a question on that, because you worked at DC when Infantino was still publisher, and then yeah. you went back when it was Jeanette Kahn and those guys and were Paul running it. And, yeah. But you found it frustrating both times? Yes. Was there any difference, any improvement? What was it like between the two experiences? 
uniformly horrible. <laughs> I mean, DC, the first time I went there, Jerry hired me. He approached me. I didn't approach right. him. And he right. said, I will give you this rate to write these books for me. DC stalled on paying me so long that I was like six books in. And then when Jerry left, they slashed the rate that I agreed to work for because it was offered to me. I see. And they thought I was going to put up with that, which I wasn't. <laughs> so Roger Slifer was there. So there was always yeah. like a person there left, that you knew. Yeah, when he left, they were like, and I'm not the only one. I mean, everybody thinks of Dark Knight. But I remember talking to Frank Miller. I don't remember which issue of the original Dark Knight, number three or number four. I think it was number three. They did the same thing. They called him and said, we're having somebody else color it because the coloring isn't here. And he was like, the coloring is on your fucking desk, goddammit. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, here it is. Jesus Christ, that place. <laughs> they were going to have someone else color yeah, an issue yeah. and, and night? He was, he was adamant you know, and pissed off. And here's the thing. It was just like my fucking script. It was already there. And they were going to do this. Ooh, I could just go on. <laughs> I'll try not to rant. But wouldn't you think, yeah, but if you were mistaken... And I said, look, the script is there, look, and you pull it out and it's in your hand. Don't you think you owe me an apology? Yes. I'm off the book. My script yeah. wasn't there. Someone else wrote it. And you're holding it yeah. <laughs> for imprecations to follow. So then at this point, you had left both Marvel and DC in 1983. And just from what I had read about you, back in 74, when you were establishing a lot of the connections in comics, you had founded your own specialty sci-fi publishing company, Fictioneer Books, and you published books by Klein as well as other science fiction people like Evan Vogt, Robert E. Howard, Jack London, and even Don McGregor. So then in 1983, as an imprint of this fiction or publications, you said, then published the Comics Interview Magazine, which was a very successful Eisner-nominated magazine, comic creator magazine, where you were interviewing various creators from 83 to 95. Am I understanding all that correctly? Yeah, you have definitely done your homework. The only thing is, I was publishing before I started at Marvel. Back right, in, back in 74. I think it was 73. No, 73, I think it was. Cuz yeah. you were publishing what, stuff all this time and then you decided to do this magazine when you yeah. left comics, right? Actually, some of my publishing knowledge and my production knowledge became useful and it surprised me because the old guard at Marvel, Saul and, and John Reporton and so on, they were pretty accomplished and, you know, they had been around the block more than mm -hmm. once. But when we did that Beatles book, I found a photographer in Canada, John Rowland who had taken pictures of the Beatles on tour and those mm. pictures had never been published. So, mm. you know, it was like a scoop. I, I could have unpublished pictures of the early Beatles on tour, you know, but when we got the paper that it was like a pulpy paper that the book was printed on, I think it was called Baxter. What happened was it soaked up the ink. So like an ink blotter, you know, and they were taken at concerts in days, you know, before anything was as advanced as it is today, you know, when it comes to photography. So, you know, there was, black backgrounds and spotlights and, you know, beetles in the foreground and stuff. But when it hit that paper, it blotted like an ink blotter. So mm -hmm. everything got really, really dark and hard to see. Mm -hmm. And that was a catastrophe because you could see the pictures. You just couldn't see them once they were on that. When we got the printer's brief, it was like, holy shit. Saul called me and he's like, we got a catastrophe here. And I was able to actually, and this was so cool. I loved this because I was able to, I knew something that they didn't there. I'm like, I can fix that. <laughs> And they were like, what? How? And I said, what you do is you leave the black plate off when they print it. You just use the red, blue, and yellow plates, and it will lighten up. It didn't lighten up as much as the actual original pictures, but you could actually see the pictures at that point. 
you know, that came from my before Marvel days. The publishing stuff, the Don's books, they came after. Mm-hmm. There was a period where Don was banished from Marvel. For want of a better word, he was being persecuted. And Don and I, you know, from when we were editing together and on, you know, we were friends and stuff. Well, when I was really bummed out, I let him dialogue some Defenders pages here and there, which mm-hmm. helped him and it helped me. But what's funny about it is it wasn't the pages anybody would think like all those really depressing Scorpio pages are 100% me. <laughs> they read like they're Don, but they're not. Don's stuff is some of the light stuff. <laughs> it doesn't read like Don because it's light stuff, you know. But he was not supposed to be credited. And so I still put his name on there because it's my goddamn book and I'll credit him if I want to, you know, and it got through and stuff, you know, and then people complained, of course. But that's when I published a couple of Don's books like Dragon Flame and other Bedtime Nightmares. And the variable syndrome, yeah, which we edited and worked on like many a night at the Green Kitchen, which still is on the corner of East 77th and 2nd. Keith and I used to plot there too. Anyway, I knew that Don's name, because his books were loved, I knew that there should be a market for that. Phil Tooling, who was still around and was a, a mover and shaker in those days, he came to me. He wanted to buy enough of them to guarantee a second printing, which was cool. Oh, that is cool. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that was that. And then you know, it got less fun. Here's what happened at Marvel from my point of view. It became so much a bureaucracy with all the different editors and all the different chain of commands and this family and that family, and you can't use this villain. It became two jobs. It became a full-time job to get work, which of course didn't leave any time for a full-time job of doing the work. And then there were various edicts, which I tried to obey. Like on She-Hulk, it's not my nature to do single-issue stories, unless I actually have a, a legitimate single-issue story. but at that time, Jim Shooter was asking for or demanding, whatever you want to say, single issue stories. And I thought, well, he's the editor in chief of Marvel, you know, it's within his prerogative to do that. So I tried to accommodate, but I don't think it led to my best work. My best work is just leave me the hell alone. <laughs> I don't know what I'll do till I do it, but when I've done it, it'll be okay. <laughs> this other thing of coming in advance and then knowing this, it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, I have no idea. I mean, it would be like telling jazz improvisation people to submit sheet music in advance. It's like, I don't know how to do that. I come from the old school of anarchy, you know. But as far as the comic stuff goes, when Salakrup was at Tops, I did an adaptation of the Dragonheart movie for him with Ron Lim. That was I have cool. that. I remember that. I think it was Paramount, but whoever was the, the production company, they sent me a really nice letter that I did a great job on it. You know, it, that was nice. And then... After that, I worked in animation for a while with Roger. And then I thought I needed a year off, you know, when I stopped comics interview. Mm -hmm. I stopped on issue 150, which matters to no one except me. But I hate sloppy things. And I felt like the bottom was dropping out. And it did. Marvel went bankrupt within a year. You know, you don't know. That was in 1995 when it ended. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And you don't know that. You know what I mean? It's like many times it had looked like the bottom dropped out and it recovered. Mm -hmm. So I just had this feeling. And I thought, you know. I'd rather stop with comics interview number 150 where Solid number. it looks like I actually know what I'm doing rather than stop with like 156 reach crash, which is kind of what happened to amazing heroes. I think 202 or something. It's like, Oh geez. And you know, who cares? Right. But I kind of do. So, you know, I'm like, wouldn't it have been better to stop with issue 200? I mean, come on. So, you know, I stopped with 150 and was it because of the internet? Was that a part of it or just, no, no. it was, uh, you know, the early 90s, early to mid 90s, it was really a comic book glut. And most of those books were not very good. That was the early days of Image and 
all the fancy schmancy different covers and this and that mm. and better sales than had ever been seen until it all collapsed. And that's really what went on. I mean, it just imploded the whole direct sales market. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, I got out just ahead of that. And I, I didn't in my editorial, I said, it's better to leave the party early than to be ejected forcibly later. And I thought I needed a year off because I'd been running on deadline for so many years. And it turned into 10 years off. <laughs> Doesn't mean I wasn't doing anything. I was like, tear escaping my mountainside and building gazebos and things like that, that I was oh, cool. totally off deadline stuff. And then I was feeling all charged up. I'm like, you know, when you're all dressed up and you have no place to go, like I was all recharged. And I was talking to Jim Salakrup and I said, you know, God, I'm just bursting to do something and I have nowhere to do it. And he put me in touch with Henri Compen and we have been doing the Yisun Shin comics now for 10 years. Oh, okay. And that's what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah, and Stan wrote the introduction to the first graphic novel, which collects the first arc. And they are not available in comic shops or direct sales market at all, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. And we have now broken well over 100,000 sales because you can't sell anything in the direct sales market anymore. Uh-huh. They have these ideas about what will sell. Their idea is that will not sell, except uh-huh. outside of that, it sells like hell. You know, Inside of it, Diamond sold, don't fall and hit your heads. Diamond says that they're the international comics distributors. So the international comics distributors, in one month, we did a test with them. In one month, they sold less than 500 copies. Henri sells 500 copies in a single day at a convention. That's not a comic book distributor. So, you know, we're just off on our own. Uh Uh-huh, that's interesting. We have licensing deals, it's cool. And a, a quick aside, in 1995, at the end of Comics Interview, you worked as a story editor and scripter for the cartoon G.I. Joe Extreme. Is that right? Yeah, and Street Fighter that year, too. And Street Fighter. So what got you into the cartoon business? Oh, you, you asked the question. Well, for years, I watched everybody, including Steve Gerber, get sucked into animation. I don't know if you remember animation then. It was very poor. There would be like a meteorite heading towards Earth that would destroy all life. And the characters would stand there like in DC poses straight up and they'd point and they'd go. So anyway, you know, the voice acting in animation was always terrible. And the voice acting in, say, like The Simpsons was better than live action. But in, you know, adventure animation, it was just awful. I didn't get into comics in order to make a quick buck. I got in comics because I love comics and wanted to do the best I could. So I wasn't after the fast buck. I didn't want to hack shit out overnight. To me, that's always how animation was. So I, I was like, I will not get into animation, and that's an end to it. But, you know, when you when you have a bathtub and you pull the plug, yeah. eventually all the water drains down. Well, I felt like that was everybody I knew, and I was clinging onto the edge. <laughs> and eventually I got sucked down there, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can tell you how it happened. After I quit publishing, and I thought, Phew, you know, at long last, I have a moment to breathe. Roger called because he was good about staying in touch. And I don't know if you know this, but he was killed in a hit and run. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, really. Roger Slifer. Yeah, it sucks. You know, years later, but still. Anyhow, stepping off a curb in Santa Monica and they never caught the person. But, you know, Roger and I, since we started at Marvel the first day, we stayed good friends like all those years. And we always stayed in touch no matter, you know, what we were doing and stuff. And he called practically every day. So he called me up and he said, and he had been in animation and I was not going there. And he called me and he said, it's the new season and there's two shows, G.I. Joe Extreme and Street Fighter. And right. they're both looking for a producer. And I've been producing G.I. Joe and I have all the credentials, but I know what's going to happen. If I apply for G.I. Joe, I won't get it. And maybe I would have got Street Fighter. But if I apply for Street Fighter, 
and don't get it, maybe I would have got G.I. Joe. Well, you know, being the wise ass I am, I said apply for both of them. And when you don't get either one, your ego doesn't have to be deflated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, so he did, and he got both jobs. Oh, cool. <laughs> then he called me back and he said, You have to get out here and help me. There's no way to do two seasons in one season, you know what I mean, of two shows. And he said, You will be my secret weapon. You know how we started out talking about how people help each other? He was like, I will not tell them you exist. But because we had worked together for so many years, we knew two things. You could count on us, both for deadline and for quality. Who else would know that, right? You know, he was like, you need to come out here. You got me into this, blah, blah, blah. Well, I kept going no, and the money kept getting better. And finally, I was like, oh, the hell with it. I'll, I'll do it then. So I went out there, and that's how I ended up working on those two seasons. And he was a man of his word. He said, if they're happy with the work and they think I'm doing it, I will mm -hmm. tell them it's you, and I will get you credit. And most people say that, and then they conveniently forget later. But he did not. Oh, cool. I wrote a bunch of episodes. Of course, I'm on those. But I'm also credited as story editor. And technically, here's what's funny. I never signed a contract with those companies. I could be like, hey, you owe me. You know, I wouldn't do that, of course. But you got checks. You got paid for your work, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's but, awesome. But, you know, when, when he got me the screen credit, I'm credited as a story editor. Well, technically, I never got paid. I did through him. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, oh, okay. yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, I'm credited, but uh, I'm not on the payroll of that company. That's anyway, funny. I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, because he yeah. was actually giving you the direct money himself. Yeah, yeah. But he, he got your name on the credits, so, so, but yeah. you were not and then there. And after it was you. done and they really loved what we did, he's like, I had this secret superpower here at Stack. Mm -hmm. And so he actually got me the credit. But you're supposed to sign contracts with them and everything. <laughs> that was almost like a ghostwriter arrangement, but you actually got credit for what you did. I got paid for the scripts by the companies and I got credited for those. But being story editor and stuff, that was a different thing. I swore I would never do it. And then it was my mouth that was like, apply for both and you won't get either one. He got both of them. <laughs> yeah. So then, you had and then to he it. couldn't let go because, you know, the money was good. But it's a good thing I did. I arrived there worn out after all those years of deadlines. And mm -hmm. when you're publishing, there's nobody to pass the buck to. Every buck passes to you. That's right. So, you know, it was day and night. One year when I was publishing after 83, I published 52 books or magazines. That's one a week. Me. I had 1.10% of the market. <laughs> Oh, wow. You know, which I thought was a quite an achievement for me, but it ran me ragged. So, you know, mm -hmm. I was really needing a rest. That's why I didn't want to do it. I was like, I'll do it next year. Well, thank God I did do it because next year the entire animation industry imploded. So you kind of are able to leave before it gets really bad. Yeah, I put it like this. You know how squirrels store acorns for the winter? Mm -hmm. You know, thank God I did those shows because I stored up my acorns for subsequent years. Everybody I knew in animation was scrambling because there just wasn't any work after that. Oh, crazy. Now, last question I have before we close out is you've named three mentors. Okay, so Lee Brackett, female science fiction writer, Stan Lee, and E. Hoffman Price as mentors. So can you tell us stories about... A you guys really do do your research. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So can you tell us a story about each one that basically put them in a role as a mentor for you? Okay, well, E. Hoffman Price... Remember, I told you how I liked Otis and Albert Klein stuff because it was very Burroughs-like, and I was in that phase, and then I became the agent. Well, Otis Albert Klein was E. Hoffman Price's mentor, and when Price was starting, he was kind of like, you know, an acolyte of Klein's. I see. So you basically, you're in that lineage with him. So, you know, I contacted him in high school. Like I said, I didn't know any bounds. And for some reason, we carried on a correspondence for like 25 years. And I visited him like, I don't know, a half dozen times in Redwood City, California. But it was interesting because he really bridged the gap. 
And I don't know why I'm interested in things like the pulp magazines. There's no explanation for it, but I've always been interested in the origins and, you know, the original Conan stories and the original Edgar Rice Burroughs serialized stuff. But Price was friends and collaborated with H.P. Lovecraft and friends with Robert E. Howard. So it was this kind of weird bridge. They, to him, were like Roger Slifer or Jim Salakrup is to me. He didn't mentor me in the sense of teaching me to write. Rather wisely, he wouldn't do that. He would tell me things about writing, but he didn't want to get involved in any, you know, like critical sort of stuff or anything. But what I, I learned from him was to be specific when you're writing. And this is, I was writing text then. This is before I, I wrote comics. And I had a story that I had been submitting that was getting rejected. And he was like, you know, don't just say it was a, you know, it was a warm, pleasant summer day. You know, it was the 4th of July and people were pouring with sweat, you know, et cetera. You know, get specific. So I rewrote this little story specifically, which he hadn't read, but it sold uh, the second time out to Amazing Stories. So he was a sort of a, a mentor at a remove, but he was friends with Lee Brackett and Ed Hamilton and wrote Captain Future and all kinds of the original science fiction as rife all through science fiction from like the 20s to you know the 50s. And then he went into comics. Lee Brackett was his wife. She wrote those Eric John Stark. You know, they've been reprinted as books, but they were originally pulp stuff. And then, you know, she wrote lots and lots of movies and things. Well, I met them through Yoffman Price. And she looked at my early work and, you know, stuff that's obvious. And yet you really need this kind of advice. She's like, where's the dialogue? (laughs) You know, if you write a movie or as it happened later, if you write animation, there's no captions. There's no descriptions. You know, you better be able to tell the story in dialogue and tell it well. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. sound like exposition, things like that. So I got that, you know, from her. Stan, you know, I just grew up reading him. And I think all of us did, you know, who were at Marvel, the second tier of us. And I think that accounts for our verbosity, you know, because Stan really wrote a lot. Therefore, we wrote a lot. Well, sometimes that was good, but sometimes it was just overwriting. And today, I mean, let's just tar them all with the same brush, shall we? (laughs) Today, the underwriting is so bad. It's like it could use some actual writing in there, you know? Yeah, yeah, I got you. One extreme to the other. There's a middle ground in there somewhere. And, you know, this is a mass criticism. There's always exceptions, of course. But people who are writing comics think they're writing for TV or movies, and they're dead wrong. They're a different medium. I've mm-hmm. written for both. Don't think you're writing for TV or movies and you're writing a comic. Write a goddamn comic and use the strengths of comics. Comics can have thought balloons. They can have sound effects. They can have things that you can't have elsewhere. When you watch a movie, like, say, the X-Men movies, you can't be in their head or Spider-Man. Right. You know what I mean? He's worried about Aunt May. He doesn't mean to do this bad thing. You're very sympathetic to them. They can't do that in movies. You have strengths in comics. Don't fucking throw them away. Those idiots. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. A, a lot of modern comics, especially after the Frank Miller kind of era, they, they don't really, I mean, they still have thought balloons, but not nearly as many. Yeah. And, you know, there were all the old cliches, but now there's all the new cliches. You know, it's like mm-hmm. that Who song, you know, meet the new cliches, same as the old ones. <laughs> This is Alex Rand and Jim Thompson with the Comic Book Historians podcast, finishing an interview with David Anthony Kraft. David, thanks so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed your insight into comics, the pulps, sci-fi writers, and the different people you worked with. It was an absolute pleasure for us because you really offer like this rock and roll journalist, publisher, comic writer perspective that's really rare. I'm really glad that people are able to learn that about you if they haven't or actually just relearn it about you if they know it already. Yeah, it was kind of gonzo. I really enjoyed this one. This was fun. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to what you do with it.